I, I honestly thought <clears throat> that we would be able to get through uh, the rest of this chapter when we start when I started preparing this evening or this this morning, excuse me, for this evening. And um, it looks like we're going to do James chapter one verses twelve through eighteen. So with that, it's just really rich. You just can't skip over this stuff, you know. Let's read these verses and then uh, we'll dive into it. It says, Blessed, in verse 12, is a man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Now do not be deceived, my brethren, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creation, or of his creatures. Let's pray. Father, again, help us to understand these words that that James wrote to the early church. Lord, that you're speaking to us tonight through your Spirit. And um, the things, God, that are already um, reaching into our own hearts, God, because you know what we've been going through this last week. Uh, God, you know exactly where each one of us at are at, and you know what we need. And so, Lord, give us understanding. Give us a, a deeper knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ. And, Lord, we pray these things all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, like I said, there's a lot going on here. I'm going to try to break it down and, and, and make it palatable for us so that we can um, really see the application. And there's, sorry, what is going on here? It is. <laughs> okay. Satan's got a hold of my computer. Sorry. It's doing what it wants. There we go. Hopefully that's it. <laughs> and um, as we continue on through these verses, what the main thing that we're seeing here is that it's the context, if you remember, that we've been studying through in the first uh, 11 verses is this, these trials that we all go through. And a trial can even be a neighbor, right? <laughs> it, could be, it, it doesn't even have to be a trial that we are necessarily directly involved with. It can be, it can be something that we're walking with someone else through, even like what Mike was saying in his prayer request, and he's got a friend who's got some physical problems, another one's got some emotional problems, and you're walking through it with them. 
And, and, and these various trials that we go through can be things that we are directly, uh, that we might say have a, that, are, that are about us, or, or they can be things that we're going through indirectly with others around us. And as, as, as we keep that context, and as James goes on, he points out that the, 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 the trials that God uses to test our faith, it can be the very thing that our heart because there's two adversaries, our heart, which is wicked and evil and deceitful, right? And only God can know it. So, so we have to add that into the, the equation here when we look at this. But again, James points out the fact that God uses um, these trials to test our faith, but these trials can be the very exact same thing that our heart or Satan will use to tempt us. And where God's testing us, Satan's going to use that opportunity, or our heart will find that opportunity to um, be tempted. In other words, trials are tests that are sent by God, and as we go through trials, we should expect that Satan will tempt us, and in doing so, he'll, he'll encourage our heart. That sin nature, that old man that the Bible speaks about, that wars against that flesh, that wars against the new nature of God inside of us, and, and he's going to encourage us to give up or to to, to give in to the sin that, that really is just as simple as moving ourselves out of God's will. And that comes in many different forms, in many different fashions. And the fact of the matter is, is when our circumstances are difficult, um, when we face those God-ordained difficulties, um, we find ourselves in the midst of God's test. And so what difficulty as, as children of God do you go through that's not God-ordained? Well, the only ones that, are, 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 that aren't God-ordained are the ones that are self-imposed, right? And, and so when you ask yourself, what category do I apply these things to, that's all you have to ask. Is this a self-imposed thing? Is it because of my own stubbornness, my own sinfulness, my own whatever? And if, it, if, the, if you can't answer yes to that, then whatever difficulty you're going through other than that is God-ordained. And sometimes that's hard for us to reconcile in our mind because we go, God, how can you allow this? Why are you allowing this? And we, we think that the difficulty that we are facing doesn't line up with what we know to be true about God. And James deals with that also in, this, in these verses. But... We find ourselves in, um, when we find ourselves in these circumstances that are difficult, when we find ourselves in the midst of God's tests, you know, what we do is we often can start complaining against God. Can we not? At least that's where I can find myself at times, is to be complaining against God. Questioning if his intentions are good. If God really knows what he's doing. And even... If it's bad enough, in my opinion or my understanding of the situation, which is different than God's, we can even question if God really loves us. God, if you love me, how can you allow for this to happen? And, and I can't think of anything harder, and I've not gone through this, but, and I pray that I don't ever have to go through this, but losing a spouse or a child, you know? Uh, and, and, and I've met people, I've counseled people who are in that situation, many, many people through hospice and their families, and, and these are questions that come up as a result of being human. And the questions aren't wrong, it's just what we do with them 
in, in what can make them wrong, how we present them before God. And, and, but, but these kinds of questions, if they're not dealt with rightly, what they will do is they will lead us to the point where we are resisting God's will, right? And um, it's at this point when Satan will step in, because he's, he's an opportunist, and he's going to stop in and um, step in and provide us with, with what appears to be an opportunity to escape the God-ordained difficulty or to do something in those moments that seem right according to us, right in accordance to our own understanding. And really, these opportunities are nothing more than temptations. That's what James is speaking about. If we look at it and try to identify it and how that really plays out in our daily lives. That's what these temptations are. And, and, and a good example of this is in Genesis chapter 12, and I'll refer to this because we've just been going through Genesis, but you will remember that um, when, God, when Abraham called God, we even talked about this last week as we were looking at Isaac's life, when Abraham had called God to leave his father's land and to go and dwell in the land of Canaan, that shortly after there he encountered a what? A famine. And um, that famine was a trial. And from God's point of view, it was a test. It was a testing of Abraham's faith. And it was an opportunity, really the first opportunity that Abraham had in this newfound relationship with God who had called him out in faith to, to see how God would keep his promises. And so the testing, the, the, the famine was God's opportunity to test Abraham so that Abraham would see that God was faithful to the promises that he kept or that he made. But what we know is, is that Abraham was tempted. We talked about this, and Isaac was tempted in the same way. And we also can be tempted in the midst of trials to run away and, and, and turn to something or someone other than God. And Abraham did that. He, he ran away from his problems and he turned to Egypt, and in doing so, he turned his back on God's promises. He turned his back on God's promises, the very promises that God had made to protect him and to provide for him. And in doing so, he left the place that God had called him to be, the, the place that God had took him to, and, and for this opportunity, this this temptation, this, this, this thing that appeared to be an opportunity to go down to Egypt and, and to have his needs met. He did something that seemed right in his own eyes, in, according to his own understanding. And in doing so, he left the will of God. And um, so when it comes to temptations, and remember, this is about, ultimately this is about for you and I, this is about how we can grow in spiritual maturity. Right? That's what this book is designed to do, to encourage us and to instruct us on how to be and how to become spiritually mature. And so when it comes to temptations and becoming spiritually mature, we must be willing to face the temptation. We must be willing to, as he says here in verse 12, to endure the temptation or the testing of the trial by exercising our faith our faith, and enduring or resisting the temptation. And in these verses that we read through, James is telling us that, that, that um, we must, that he's, he's telling us three things specifically, if you're keeping notes, if you want to write them down. Three things that we must consider if we're to resist or overcome 
the various temptations that we all face in the midst of the various trials that we go through. To begin with, what we see in these verses is that, that James is telling us to consider God's judgment. Consider God's judgment. In addition to that, he's telling us to consider God's goodness. Consider God's goodness. If you want to endure the temptation that comes in the midst of the trial, you need to consider God's judgment, consider God's goodness, and lastly, consider God's nature. More specifically, God's nature that has been put inside of us through that spiritual rebirth as a result of giving our lives to Jesus Christ. So, three things. And in the, 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 the first set of verses, really from verses 12 to 15, where he said, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And then he says, in verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does anyone himself, nor is anyone himself nor does he himself tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and is enticed. So in these, in these first set of verses, James is simply pointing out for us that a temptation will take us down a path that um, does not have a good end. If we give way to a temptation, if we don't endure, persevere, have patience through the time of testing, and, and, and we decide to move in a way that seems right to us uh, for whatever reason, um, it's going to lead us down a path that doesn't come to a good end. In fact, a temptation not only leads us to the place where our desires give birth to sin and death, it will also lead us away from the good things that God has in store for us. And that was exampled by Abraham who left and went to Egypt, right? And in going to Egypt and giving way to the temptation to run away from the trial, he didn't remain in the place where God said he would be blessed, in the promised land. And we've already, we've already said that, the, that, that through the time of testing, through the trial, that God's doing a good thing, right? He's refining us. He's purifying us. He's testing our faith, which is more precious than gold or silver. It says that passes, passes away. And so, therefore, we must endure, as, as, as James writes here in verse 12, or resist specifically what that kind of, another way that that might translate to, the enticing of, of, of Satan and the desires of our heart as we see that they're connected to the times of temptation during these times of testing, we must resist. And furthermore, because we're, we're a people who don't like to take responsibility for our bad actions, um, James reminds us that God does not and cannot tempt us simply because he's holy. And, and, and the sins which are produced or which temptations ultimately will produce they're evil, and, and, and God is not evil. God is good. In other words, we only have what James is saying. When we're tempted and led away from, from the things of God and the will of God, the only person that we have to blame is ourself. We only have ourselves to blame. When we turn away from the will of God and when we give way to the enticing or the, the desires of our heart. Now, a temptation can be also described as this. 
A temptation can be an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way. A temptation can be an opportunity to accomplish a good thing in a bad way. And what does that mean? In a way that is apart from the will of God. Bottom line. And I believe our tendency is to think of sin as one single action. Okay? I sinned. But according to James here in these verses, God sees sin as a process, not just as a single action. God sees sin, our sin, as a process. And in these verses, James describes this process of sin in four particular stages. Desire, deception, disobedience, and death. Okay? That's the process of sin. And this first step in the process is desire. And if you look at verse 14, James speaks about this desire and, and, and the word that he uses in verse 14 is also translated, maybe in another translation that you have, as the word lust. Same thing. That's the word that's being used here. In the Greek, it's the word epithomie. And um, it means a craving or a longing, but specifically a craving or a longing for something that is forbidden. Okay? That's the word, the terminology that is being used here as we see the category that James is referring to in regards to desire or lust. And you see, God has, when we look at this, we need to understand that God has put within all of us certain desires. He's put desires in us. And in and of themselves, these desires that God has placed within us, they're not sinful. In fact, without most of these desires, we as human beings could not function. For example, if we did not feel hungry or thirsty, we would probably never eat or drink. Although, I eat and drink even when I'm not hungry and thirsty. That's a problem I have sometimes. But another example is, if, is, is, is without feeling tired, a desire for sleep without feeling tired, we would never take the time to rest and we would eventually wear out, Right? Likewise, without the desire for physical intimacy, the human race would not reproduce and, and there, we wouldn't continue on as, as a species. However, it's when we seek to satisfy these desires in a way that's outside of God's will, that's when we get into trouble. In other words, eating is normal, but overeating is gluttony. That's a sin, right? Likewise, sleeping is normal, yet, yet sleeping all the time could be equated to laziness, and Bible says laziness is also a sin. And a desire for physical intimacy um, is good when it, it takes place, um, but when it takes place outside of the marriage relationship between one man and one woman, the Bible says that that too is sin. And I point this out because in light of these things, we can see that these basic desires that God gives us um, um, these desires of life, really, if you want to say that you could probably classify them as, as a desire of life, they're really a fuel um, that, that makes us go. But if we allow for that fuel or these kinds of fuels, these desires, to go in their own way or to go in a way that seems right to us, they're destructive because they're, they're perverted away from God's original intentions. 
for our lives and for those around us. And this is why we must bring all desires that we have into the submission and into the will of God. And that's the first thing that James is really pointing out to us. Because ultimately, when we bring our desires into the submission of the Holy Spirit, when we do this, then our desires will be used to serve us rather than having the desire master us. And, and, and that's a key in relationship to temptation and desires. Because in verse 14, James goes on and says that there's also, that we have, have this second stage in the, in the sin progression. As James says, that is when we are tempted, that we're drawn away by our own desires through enticement. Which also can refer to deception. When you, you can, you're, this, this type of enticement is, is, carries the idea with it of being deceived. In other words, James is telling us when we're going through trials, when we're going through times of testing, you know, there's some things that we should know. We already talked about that a little bit last week. But one of the things that we need to know is, is when we're going through times of testing, when our, when our faith is being tested, is that we should expect that Satan is going to lie to you in those times of testing. He's going to come and he's going to tell you things that aren't true to discourage you, to lead you away from God's will. And we have to understand that most every temptation is going to make it seem like the thing that we're being tempted to do is not such a bad thing, okay? And it will even seem at times like it's a good thing. Say that again. We have to understand that most every temptation is going to make it seem like the thing that we're being tempted to do is not such a bad thing and even seem like it's a good thing. Furthermore, every temptation is going to make the opportunity to do whatever is contrary to God's will seem like it is actually better than doing God's will. You ever been faced with that kind of a thing? Where you're like, God, I, I know this is not right, but it sure seems like it's going to be good. Because you're being tempted, you're being deceived in the midst of the test. Either by your heart or by your own wisdom and understanding and by Satan that comes in, tries to trick us. In, in addition to that, it's, it's like we know what God's will is, but, but in the moment it can seem like doing what's contrary to God's will might be better. Like for example, God says that we should pay our taxes, right? Well, this time of year, up until April 15th, you may be looking at your stuff, and you may have a, a ton of bills and very little income, and you're going to be getting hit with a big tax bill, and, 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 and Satan might come and entice you. Your heart might want to deceive you into thinking that it, it, it might be a good idea to not pay my taxes, and that might even be better than doing God's will because if I do God's will, I'm only going to go into further debt. And if I just don't pay my taxes, I can take this money and do something good with it. And, 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 and this is how our heart works. And, and Satan's not always in the equation, guys. Trust me. We give him way too much credit for the things that go on that lead us outside of, our God's, out of God's will. And that's where it goes back to, you know, the person I have to blame in 99.9 .9 of those situations is myself. The Bible says that in those moments that we go in a way that seems right to us, and, and, and you heard me say it a hundred times probably, but if we're going in a way that seems right to us, you know what it's going to seem? It's going to seem right to us. Deception. Being tricked. 
And, 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 and there's more evidence to this is, this is exactly what James is referring to by the Greek word that he uses here for entice, which is the word deliazo. And, and it means to lure away with bait. To lure away with bait. So even though the temptation is going to be appealing to us, we need to see that it's nothing more than a deception. James saying, you need to know this. If you're going to endure times of testing and the temptations that come, you need to know that the temptation is, is nothing more than a deception. A good example of this is also found in Genesis chapter 13, which tells us about Lot, Abraham's nephew. And um, in that chapter, what we read there, it's clear that, that Lot would have never moved near the city of Sodom because of the fact that it was so wicked and evil. He would have, in his right mind, in his right thinking, he would have not moved to the city, to, to, towards that city of Sodom, if he, according to verse 10 in chapter 13, it says, if he had not looked up and seen the well-watered plains of the Jordan. It was a temptation, and he was being enticed to move near a place that would not be good for him. And we're told that when Lot saw this land, it was desirable to him. Because he thought, he said to himself, or basically he thought this was the perfect place to, to feed my herds, to feed my flocks. But this land also bordered this wicked and evil city. And in the end, what looked good was nothing more than a bait that Satan used to lure Lot into a city that would eventually be judged by God and eventually cost Lot everything. Everything. Now, bait is not only used to attract, but it's also used to hide or to conceal what is harmful or hurtful. And, and, and conceal how... Giving into our desires will eventually bring forth some kind of sorrow or some kind of judgment in our life. For example, think about it. If King David, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, if, if he, as he gazed out of his window and looked upon Bathsheba, who was bathing there on a rooftop, or, or, or we don't know for sure it was on a rooftop, I take that back, but if, if he had not looked out his window, if he, had, if he had seen the consequences of his sin, don't you wish you could do that sometimes? That you're being enticed, you're looking and you say, oh, that land over there is beautiful. And at the same moment, God goes, yeah, but take a look at this. The consequences of your sin for doing this. If David, as he looked out and saw Bathsheba, Bathsheba could also have seen the consequences of his sin, I'm sure he would have not taken that first bite, if you will, that led him to commit adultery, betrayal, and eventually murder. But just like bait is designed to hide the hook, right? Bait is designed to hide the hook, guys. To entice, to draw in, and to hide. And, and not only will it, will it hide a hook, but it, 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 sometimes bait is used to to disguise or hide a trap as well. And whenever I think of that, I think of those big bear traps. That's like, 
It's going to crush down on you. You know, they're, they're concealed. They're hidden. And the bait of temptation which entices us also keeps us from seeing the consequences of our sin. The bait of temptation which entices us also keeps us from seeing the consequences of our sin. You get so focused in on it, it's like, I gotta have it, I gotta want it. And when David saw Bathsheba, that's all he could see. He was enticed. And he was led away by the desires of his flesh. You know, in Matthew chapter 4, we're told that when Jesus was tempted by Satan, remember that, when he was in the wilderness for 40 days, that Satan always delivered the temptation in a in, in an appeal to a desire, okay? Satan always delivered his temptation to, to Jesus and, and, and in an appeal, he appealed to his desires. And he did so in order to deceive Jesus and to trap him. Yet, with each temptation, temptation, we know that Jesus looked beyond the temptation and he looked to the word of God. And each time he responded to Satan's temptations with these, with these three words, it is written, it is written, it is written. And then he would go on, he would refer to the word of God. And, and he, as he, uh, he did this, and as he did so, he endured and he resisted Satan's temptations. And this is such an important example for us because from a human point of view, Guys, from a human point of view, often the temptation is going to seem like a reasonable thing, like a sensible thing to do. But temptation is never sensible when we see it from God's point of view. And that's what the Word of God does for us. It enables us to see the trickery and the deception from God's point of view. And this is why knowing God, why, why, why knowing God's word is so important for us. And, and, and we know, when we know what the Bible says, then we can easily detect the bait and deal with the enticement decisively. You go, yeah, that's, that's just a trick. It's just a deception. That's not going to lead to what it's promising me. That's not going to taste good because there's a hook on that and it's going to rip my lip. And then I'm going to be reeled in and filleted and eaten you know, that's, that's what sin does. And so this, and so really, guys, it says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so when we see that, we begin to see the connection here because with the Word of God, we easily detect the bait and, and then we deal with the enticement in a very decisive way. And that's what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. We're walking by faith, by faith in what the Word of God is telling us in spite of how we feel in the moment of our desires being led. Now, as we move on and look to the, th uh, the third stage in the process of sin, which is disobedience, if you look here in verse 15, James says in verse 15 that when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Okay? When when when. And this is a cool analogy because we can relate to it, you know. When a, when a, when a woman conceives, then she's, she has a little baby inside of her, and eventually the baby's going to give, eventually the woman's going to give birth to that baby. And, and, and that's the analogy that's, that's being given to us here so that we can begin to, in our minds, um, uh, see what, what, what's, what's taking place here. And James says through this process 
that, that when desire is conceived, when we give way to that, when, we, when, when fertile ground is, is set forth for desire to, to conceive itself, it then gives birth to sin. And desire is, con- is conceived through the temptation, through the enticement. When Satan gets you to move in a way that seems right to you or out of God's will, that's when sin can be give, given birth to it. In light of this, it's important to point out that the desire, which is the first in the order of things, this, this, is, this, this, is, how, this is where I'm trying to break it down so we can really grasp it. And, and, and it's, it's simple, I understand this, but when you see the order of it, it, it for me it really helps. So what I want you to see is that, that desire, which, which is the first in the order of things, when it, when, when it comes forth, it's connected specifically to our feelings and our emotions, right? Desire. It's the feelings. It's the emotions part of who we are as a being. Deception, on the other hand, the second in the order of things, is attached to our mind, to our thoughts. So first Satan works in the, or our heart, you know, is deceiving us in, in the emotional or the feeling side of it, and then to our mind and then our thoughts. And this is important because if we keep these things in mind and then we begin to look at disobedience and in regards to disobedience, we begin to see that disobedience in the same manner is attached to our will. Desire is the feelings and the emotions. The deception is an attack um, or is attached to the mind or the thoughts. And then in regards to disobedience, it's an act of the will. And um, in short, this is what I mean. Our desires that makes our mind vulnerable to being tricked into taking the bait and approving what is not good will then move us to act in will. Meaning, Meaning we have a choice to make. Does that make sense? We have a choice to make. And um, uh, that choice brings us to an action. We have a choice to make that will bring us to an action. And if it's in, 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 in relationship to the progression of sin, it's going to ultimately result with our choice, an act of the will, to sin against God. And the fact of the matter is, all of Christian living is first and foremost a matter of our will. Think about it if you can, briefly, and then maybe a little bit more. But every aspect of Christian living is, is first and foremost a matter of our will, not a matter of our feelings. And I point this out because perhaps you've even said this, and I've said this at times, but I've heard other people say this, most often in, in times of counseling, I hear people say that, well, I don't really feel like doing that. You know, and even more on a simplistic level, which encompasses more in a generality kind of a sense, I hear Christians say all the time, I don't feel like reading my Bible. I don't feel like going to church today. I don't feel like praising God when I get to church and worshiping. But all of these statements and others like them, as James kind of highlights them all for us through these verses, all of those things, when we say stuff like that, it's just, it's just an indicator of a level of spiritual immaturity. Think about it like this. 
these same kinds of, of, of justifications for not doing what is right are typically heard by children who normally operate on the basis of their feelings, right? My wife teaches like grade school kids. I don't want to do that. I don't feel like doing that, you know? And, and, and that happens in our own home. And we've all heard our kids say more than once that they didn't feel like it when they're giving us a reason for doing for not doing what we, what, we, what we had told them to do or for not doing what they know to be right. But when a person grows up, we who are adults, okay, the world expects us, and we typically as well operate on the basis of our will, meaning in spite of how we feel. And those who are mature adults will make a choice and act to do the right thing in spite of how they feel because they know it's the right thing to do. That's really what can be defined as an adult. And when I think about my own boys growing up and, and, and them growing up to be adults, there's some things that pop into my mind that gives me an indicator that they're now growing in maturity. One is, is that they can provide for themselves monetarily. I don't have to keep paying their insurance or, or whatever, right? But, but when, when my son decides to go ahead, I'm going to get up and get out of bed and go to work, even though I don't feel like it, that's a sign of maturity. He's growing up and he's showing and exampling what it means to be an adult. And as a father, my little dad heart is proud and it beats and I'm like, yeah, you know what? And, 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 and so we see the connection there in regards to spiritual maturity as well. And, and, and the thing to understand is, is that the more that we exercise our will, okay, and exercising brings forth what? A strength. The more that we exercise our will in spite of how we feel by enduring the temptation and saying no to our desires in those moments when facing the temptation, the Bible teaches us that the more God will then begin to take control of our lives. Because the act of a will in a spiritually mature Christian isn't going, I'm going to do this. The act of will in a spiritually mature Christian is going, I can't do this, but I'm going to surrender to God who can and who will. God, not my ways, but your ways be done. Now, the, 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 the sobering thing about disobedience, really the sobering thing about a, 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 an act of our will, that, that is, an, is an act of disobedience against God, that James says here again in verse 15, is that it brings forth death. Disobedience, James says, in the midst of trials and temptations and in all these things, it brings forth death, which is always the last stage of sin. Okay? You want to know where sin, what sin ends with? It's very clear. It ends with death. And we may think that in the moment that sin's going to lead us to, yes, I'm going to get what I want. It doesn't, never. It always leads to a death, to a death. And, and we know in, in, in many cases it can lead to physical death and spiritual death, but, but death in the sense that it brings forth an unwanted loss at the very least, the very least. And if, and if we would only believe God's word and see this end of sin in the face of the temptation, it would encourage us to resist the temptation, would it not? Brother, this is going to end in death. You know, 
If we're, if we're confronted with that reality, if we live with that reality in the front of our mind, how more often would we turn away from it before we even head down that path, knowing where it goes to? And as we consider each one of these stages, guys, these four stages, desire, deception, disobedient, and death, in regards to the process of sin, you know what? We have a very perfect illustration of exactly what this looks like recorded in the Bible in the book of Genesis with Adam and Eve's sin, which led to really the fall of mankind. And this is in Genesis chapter 3. And if you follow this pattern, you, you, you overlay it in Genesis chapter 3, you see exactly what James is talking about. Because in Genesis chapter 3, we read that Satan, who is called the serpent, the deceiver, he first kind of pricked um, Eve's desire by telling her that the forbidden tree was good for food. Got her attention, right? Hey, Eve, you know that, that tree over there? It's good for food. And he did that initially to get her attention, to arouse the desire for having something that she knew she was not supposed to have. That she knew would end in death. But Satan didn't just leave it with the desire. He took it a step further in the progression that led to sin, and he moved to deception, and, and he baited Eve. He lured her in by saying that the forbidden tree was good and pleasant, and that eating it would make her wise. The deception. He took her desire and he deceived her with a lie. And in this, Eve saw the bait, and at looking at the bait, what did she forget? She forgot God's words to her. She forgot God's words of warning that told her that if she ate for the forbidden tree, she would surely die. And she was being called to walk by faith. And faith comes by hearing the word of God. And she ignored the word of God because she got her eyes on the bait. It's going to be good for food. It's going to make me wise. And then the third thing in this progression of sin happened when Eve chose to disobey God. It was a choice. It was then an act of her will. And in acting out on her will and disobeying God, we know that she took the fruit of the tree and she ate it. And then she took the fruit of the tree in another act of her will and shared it with her husband, who also disobeyed God. And sadly, both Adam and Eve then experienced the last thing in this progression of sin. They experienced death. And the Bible tells us the first death that they experienced was a spiritual death, which is, which is simply the separation from God. They were separated from God. And then ultimately a physical death, just like God had said. So, guys, whenever we are faced with a temptation... We have to get our eyes off of the bait. Stop looking at the bait and look ahead to see what God says about sin and, and, and how all sin brings forth consequences and ultimately all sin will bring forth, at least that very end for, for an unbeliever, unrepentant sin will bring forth ultimately the judgment of God. So James warns us to consider God's judgment, but the cool thing about it as we read on is James also asks us to consider God's judgment goodness. Consider God's judgment, but consider God's goodness. And in verse 16, he says, do not be deceived, my, my, my beloved brethren. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And, and listen, guys, one of the enemy's tricks 
is to convince us that God our Father is holding out on us. That's one of his tricks. It's one of his deceptions. That he's holding out on us and that in doing so, he doesn't really love us or he doesn't care for us. Or that the hard thing that we're going through, how, if God, that, that, that going back to what we talked about earlier, is if God loved you, if God was good, then why would he allow you to go through this? Why would he bring this upon you? Right? In fact, when Satan came to Eve, back in Genesis chapter 3, he used this tactic. He even suggested to Eve that if God loved her, he would then permit her to eat from the forbidden tree, but because God had only God had prohibited them to do it, then somehow God did not want Eve to, to, to receive a good thing. Specifically, what Satan said is that God doesn't want you to be like him. That God was holding back something good. Furthermore, when Satan tempted Jesus, he raised the question of hunger, saying, saying if your father loves you, why are you hungry? Doubting the goodness of God. And in this, Satan knows for us, if he can get us to doubt God's goodness, then we will be more likely in the midst of the trial to then abandon his will for our own desire and for our own will, and then we're going to choose the temptation if we doubt the fact that what we're going through from God is in fact good. Yet, the knowledge of God's never-failing goodness God who only gives us good and perfect gifts, it is a great safeguard against yielding to that temptation or giving into that temptation. And when we consider that God is good, um, well, more than consider, when we know, when we know that God is good, when we, when we in those moments fight off those lies with the truth, of God's goodness, you know what happens? We don't need any other person to meet our needs. Not ourself or Satan who's promising through the temptation to do something for us that, in, that, that we believe in the moment that God can't do for us or what God won't do for us, which is, which is wrong. But that's what we realize is that we don't need those things. We don't need anyone else when we understand that God is good. However, once we start to doubt God's goodness... We're going to be attracted to the wickedness that is in our hearts or that Satan offers and to the sinful desires within us, that old man, that sin nature. And, and, and then that's when we reach out for that bait and we take hold of it because we think that's good, that's better. And so we have to understand that God is good. And this admission, this admonition to consider God's goodness is, is spoken um, to many different people in the Bible. If you read through the Bible, you see this admonition about no, God is good. Don't go here. God is good. Don't do that. God is good. Remember these kinds of things. And, 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 and it's brought forth in many different ways throughout the Bible. And, 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 but one thing I want to point out to you is that even Moses, standing outside of the, the promised land before he died, because he couldn't go in, after leading the children of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years, as they were preparing to go, preparing to go into the promised land, the land of Canaan, Moses stood before the children of Israel, before the nation of Israel, and he warned them. One of the things that he told them, he says, do not forget the goodness of your God after you have entered into the promised land and have begun to enjoy his blessings. Now, why would we need to be told that in that kind of context? Why would they need to be told that in that kind of context? That after you've entered into the promised land and you have begun to take 
part of all the blessings and all the goodness of God, he says, don't forget God's goodness. And the reason we have to be warned about that today and the reason why the children of Israel had to be warned about that before they went into the promised land is because we can, we can easily begin to enjoy the blessings of God more than the one who gives the blessings. And in doing so, we lose sight of God's past goodness to us when today's various trials come upon us. And that was important because even in the promised land, the children of Israel faced various trials. And you see that when they faced these various trials, they forgot about the goodness of God, even though they were in the promised land partaking of the blessings of God. And that's because they began to enjoy the blessings more than they enjoyed the blesser, the one who gave them the blessings. And in, James, in, in verse 17, James points out four facts for us. I'm going to go through them pretty quickly. But four facts for us to consider regarding the goodness of God to help us to remember in those times when various trials come. And the first is the fact that, that God gives only good gifts. God only gives good things. And everything that is good in this world comes from God. So it reasons, if that's true, that if it did not come from God, it is then therefore not good. Simple stuff, right? But we can lose sight of these simple truths pretty quickly in the midst of those various trials and those times of testing that we go through. We can forget that if this is not from God, it's not good. Furthermore, if something has come from God, it must be good even if we do not or cannot immediately see the good in it. Let me say that again. Even, <clears throat> if something has come from God, it has to be in our minds reconciled to be good. If we know that it's from God, the, the, you, we have to be willing to go, it's good, to know that it's good, to reconcile that it's good, even if we do not or cannot immediately see the good in it. Here's an example. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10, Paul tells us about his thorn in the flesh, right? If you're going to classify something in your life as a thorn in your flesh, right, and, and we've all done that, that person is a thorn in my flesh, right? And, 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 and we've done that, so it already puts forth this negative connotation. But what Paul says is he says that that thorn in my flesh was given to me by, who does he say? By God. God was the one who had given Paul his thorn in his flesh. And, 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 and to Paul, it seemed to be a strange gift from God. One that he asked God, we're told, on three different occasions to remove it from him, yet God refused is because it was clearly a, a, a blessing. And Paul finally came to terms with it and said, man, God's given this to, to kind of buffer me, to keep me humble. And when he looked at it in the light, he saw that it was a good thing. You know, Mike and I have a, a, a dear friend, a good friend who has, who has cancer. And it's killing him. 
And the last time I really sat down and spoke to him about it, talked to him about doing some, some of this funeral stuff for him, he said one of the things that he wanted me to tell everybody at his funeral was that his cancer was a blessing from God. And he's gone through, he's gone through hard things with his physical illness. But he believes that God's used this to bring him back into a relationship with him. And, and, and there's nothing better than that. And so lots of people could look at it and go, cancer can't be a good thing. It's a hard thing for sure. But if it's come from God, who's sovereign over all and only brings good things into our lives, we have to ultimately get to that point where we reconcile that God is good and what God gives is good. And when we do that, you know what's going to happen? We're going to begin to see the good in it, just like Paul. In addition to God only giving good gifts, James, James points out another fact and tells us that, that, um, that um, um, what God gives is good. And this is important because it's possible for, for someone, um, or excuse me, the, the manner in which God the manner or the way in which God gives is good. That's, what, that's the second thing that James is pointing it out. And this is important because it's possible for someone to give us a good gift in a manner that is less than loving. You can get a good thing from somebody and it can be given in a very unloving way. And um, in those moments at that time, the value of the gift is then by diminished by the way that it has been given to us. But when God gives us a blessing, he always does it in a loving way. Not only is a good God who gives good gifts, but he's a good God who gives gifts in a loving way. So what God gives us and how God gives us are both good. So what God gives us and how God gives it to us it's both good. And he also, what we told here is that he's always giving us good constantly or continually. That's all he knows how to do. That's all he can do. And in verse 17, this phrase or these words, really it's one Greek word for, for this phrase comes down, is, is presented in the present tense, more specifically as a, as a present participle. And so a more accurate translation, translation might read like this. God's goodness keeps coming down. God's goodness keeps on coming down. And the point is, is, is God does not give occasionally. He does not just occasionally give us good things. He's constantly giving us good things. At every, you, know, you ever heard somebody say, every, I, I just can't turn around without being blessed by God. And, you know, it's like we, we refer to those, to those high times of life where it's like, you know, everything's just going the way that we want or the way that we expect. And, and, and then when it's not going in a way that we want or a way we expect, somehow that means that God's not blessing us at every point we turn around. And, and that's not true. James is telling us that God's, God's, God's giving to us is coming down. It's always coming down. It's never not coming down the goodness of God. And so even when we do not see his gifts, we can know that he's still sending them. You know, 
my wife gave me two cards for Valentine's Day. One was on my dresser, and I read it. It was sweet. It was nice. And later in the day, I opened up a dresser drawer, and I found another gift. Well, she had already given that gift. I just hadn't found it yet. You see, and that's the thing about it is God's, God's got good things for us all over the place. And just because we haven't found it or we haven't seen it yet doesn't mean that he's like not giving us good anymore. You know, maybe he's tucking them away someplace for that special time, you know, when we need it, when he knows, because he sees the beginning from the end. But he's constantly giving it, even, and he's sending to us even when we don't know. And the, and the last fact that James gives us in this verse, verse 17, in regards to God being good, is the fact that God does not change, guys. And we know that he's the same today, yesterday, and forever. And so if you're in one of those moments of life where you're like, everywhere I turn, God just pouring out his blessing on me. Tomorrow, if that all falls apart, God is still pouring out his blessings on your life. God is still good. He does not change. There's no variation or shadow of turning with our Heavenly Father. And it's impossible for God to change. He cannot change for the worse because He is holy. He cannot change for the better because He is already perfect. He's perfect. So because He is the unchanging God, we should never have a right or a reason to really question or doubt His love or His goodness, even when the difficulties of life comes or when temptation appears. And this is a tool for us to use when we're enduring temptation, when Satan comes and whispers and says, God doesn't love you. How can God be good? He's holding out on you. And it's like, it's a lie. Satan, it's a lie. It's a lie. I know what my God's like. And even now, even now, he's good. And he's blessing me. So guys, listen, look at it like this. The first safeguard for us to consider when resisting temptation is, that the ju- is, is, is the judgment of God, right? The end of the thing. That sin leads to death. But the second safeguard is the goodness of God. So on one hand, James says, consider the judgment of God. And he says, on the other hand, consider the goodness of God. And in light of this, we can say, we can see that James is saying, or he's telling us that a fear of God is a healthy attitude to have, but knowing that God is good and loving must be what balances us out in regards to the fear of God that we're called to have. The fear of God and the love of God. And we can choose to obey God because We know that he might discipline us, right? Your kids can choose to obey you because you know that you might, that they they know that you might discipline them. Or we can choose to obey God because he's been so good to us. And because of his love, we then in turn love him back. Remember, God's gifts are always better than Satan's bargains. I stole that. I didn't make that up, but it's good. I love that. God's gifts are always better than Satan's bargains. And for you, for you who are like bargain shoppers, you know, you want to get the bargain, don't do that in regards to the spiritual things. God's gifts are always better than Satan's bargains. In the end, guys, Satan never gives any gift. He doesn't give you a gift. Because 
even if Satan gives you something that appears to be a good thing, we always end up paying for it dearly. And if you pay for something, it's not a gift. You flat out went and bought whatever Satan's given you, and you just paid for it. So the next time you're tempted, consider the goodness of God in your life. That's what James says. And then verse 18, we'll end with this. He says, of his, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creation. So, so far, James told us, he's told us to look ahead and beware of the judgment, to see the end of the thing. And then he said, look around and see how God's been, how God's, who is good, has been blessing you. Look ahead and look around. Now James is telling us to look within. Look ahead, look around, and look within. To look within. To look within ourselves and realize, guys, that we're a new creation. We're a new creation. And this is the third thing for us to consider when we're faced with this temptation so that we might be able to overcome the temptation. You see, before we became followers of Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches us that we were spiritually dead and that we were slaves to sin. And when Satan threw that lure out, we were on in an instant and we got reeled in every time. Every time. We were slaves to sin, but now we've received a new birth and we've been brought forth, it says here, by the word of truth. In other words, we become a new creation with a new nature that is not beholding to sin. Furthermore, this nature we now possess is a divine nature, meaning it has been birthed by the Spirit of God who now lives within us. And this happened when we first put our faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus said about this rebirth in John chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Listen to it within the context of what we've been studying now. He says, Most assuredly, I say to you, listen. Unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. But that's not us any longer. Because it says, also, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. A new nature. And Jesus said, do not marvel that I say this to you. You must be born again. And he goes on. But in addition to this, verse 18 reminds us that this new birth is a work of God. And anytime you read in the Bible about a work of God, just enter enter the word grace or vice versa. Anytime you see the word grace, just enter in that term, a work of God. God working on our behalf. Now think about that. What we're being told is, is that being a new creation in Christ Jesus, when we are faced with temptation, that God's now going to come through a spirit that lives inside of us in this new nature, and he's going to give grace. He's going to work on our behalf. You see, James also points out that you know this is something that's been given to us. It's not something we earn. It cannot deserve it. It's the grace of God. And God gives us his spiritual birth because of his own will. It's his desire for us. And in John chapter 1, it says this in verse 12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of this blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And if this is God's work in us, we have to understand that this is God's will for us is so that we will not be longer, any longer slaves to these things that we were once slaves before. So in as much as we have been born again by the Holy Spirit, we are now a new creation as a result of God's word. He has brought us forth, it says, 
by the word of truth. And just like our physical birth required two parents, a mother and a father, so does divine birth in regards to regeneration and being born again. It has two parents, the Spirit of God and the Word of God is what we're being told here. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, it says this. It says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, he says, Love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed, through the Word of God, which lives and abides forever. And the point is, is the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God inside of us to continue that process of rebirth. And yeah, we're re- we, we, are, we are born again at that time of conversion. But you know what? There's this process that we're going through, and it's referred to as sanctification. And that's the process of being birthed every day in, in regards to becoming this new creation in Christ Jesus as it's lived out in our lives. And since the Word of God is living and powerful, as the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy, it has the ability to regenerate that new life in our heart as we go daily putting our trust in Jesus. And in this verse, James says that this new life is kind of a first fruits. It's a first fruits of his creatures. And this phrase would have had significant meaning to a Jewish reader, right? You and I are not familiar with that, fir- that term on a daily basis of first fruits. But what it's referring to here is, is that in the Old Testament, the Jews were required to bring their first fruits from the harvest of the Lord as an expression of and as of their love and devotion to God. And in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, it tells us this. It says, To honor the Lord with all of your possessions and with the first fruits of all of your increase. And out of all the creatures that God has in this universe, you know what? We, we have to see, we have to understand that as Christians, we are the highest simply because we share in God's nature. For this reason... We should also see that it's beneath us to accept Satan's temptations, to accept his baits, the desires for sinful things. Because with God in us, we're greater than that. A higher birth means a higher way of living, right? With a higher birth comes a higher way of living. And this is why God instructs us in his word to be holy as he is holy. And it's this experience of new birth that helps us to overcome the temptation. But if we let that old nature, our old man take over, you know what's going to happen? We'll always fail. That's how we did it before. But now we can do it differently. And if we yield to this new nature, God's nature in us, this new man that has been birthed, we're going to have that power that we need to overcome the temptation. But there has to be the word of truth. What do we feed on? What does the new man feed on? What does the Spirit of God within us feed on? It feeds on the Word of God daily in our lives in order that we can be strong to fight, fight these battles. I'm going I'm to wrap it up with this, guys. No matter what excuses we make, James makes it clear that we have no one to blame for our sin but ourselves. And it's by our own desires that we're led into sin and temptation. God's not to blame. But God has established three safeguards for us, right? Three safeguards to keep us from sin. 
And if we heed these barriers, James simply says, man, there's a crown waiting, a crown in the end. And if we break through these barriers, you know what we find? We find a coffin. So it's up to us, a crown of life or a coffin that leads to death, spiritual death, and, 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 and ultimately a, a death that we experience in this life, which, is, which brings forth great loss. And so we need to remember there's a process. Desire, deception, disobedience, and death. And we need to remember that these barriers, as reminders, God's judgment, God's goodness, and that we have this new nature, God's nature, with inside of us. And with these things, we can endure whatever trial and whatever temptation you're going through in this life. Father, thank you, God, for so much in these so few verses. And God, I know there's even more here for us to, 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 to consume and to take in. So Father, even the things that we've talked about, I pray, God, that we would be able to discern them, that we'd be able to digest them and to apply them to our lives. I pray, God, that they would be strength and encouragement for whoever hears, God, this word being taught, either here this, this evening or, or on the internet or later on, Lord. God, please bless us and keep us. And Lord, strengthen us by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.